Okay, so we are stepping into a new series that we are calling God's House. Uh, we are going to be talking about the temple uh, and how God wants to dwell with us. We're coming up to Christmas, which is the, the ultimate advent of God coming to dwell with us in bodily form as Jesus. But this is, yeah, this is what we're leading up to. So we want to look at how the story of Scripture develops and how we get to Jesus and what it means for God to dwell with us. And so in the beginning, like we saw in the video, Eden, the Garden of Eden actually is a temple, though it may not look like it, that all of creation is God's temple, even though it might not look like it. We're used to to temples being these elaborate buildings that you go in to worship, but actually God makes all of creation his temple. A temple is simply a place where God dwells and God rules. Ancient temples in the ancient Near East were thought to be like a mini-universe where the God would dwell and rule with ultimate authority inside of this building, inside of this temple, inside of this, this universe, this cosmos. But instead of a mini-universe, though, God decides to make a whole real universe to dwell in. But God's temple is so very different than, than one of these ancient Near Eastern temples. There's this Babylonian creation myth. It's called the Enuma Elish. Can you say that with me? Enuma Elish. So, I'm going to tell a story. I'm going to summarize this story for you. So, the Enuma Elish tells of Marduk, the chief god of Babylon. He became king of the gods, and and it talks about how humans were created for the service to the gods. So, in the beginning, there are two gods, Apsu and Tiamat. They're the sweet water ocean and the salt water ocean. Together, they had god children who lived in Tiamat's body. This is already getting weird, eh? Eventually, these god children decide to rise up. And in a battle for supremacy, Apsu, the sweet water god, is killed by one of the god's children. And then Tiamat is going for revenge and decides to go and attack the children again. A battle ensues, and one of the god children named Marduk defeats Tiamat. He becomes chief god, and he kills Tiamat, the god. Out of Tiamat's corpse, Marduk goes and creates the earth and the sky and orders the universe with planets and stars and moon, weather, calendar, etc. He creates all this, and then he says, I'm finished working, but I'm going to do one last thing. Out of the last little bit of the corpse of Tiamat, I'm going to make myself some slaves to serve me for the rest of the time so I can just chillax here, and they'll bring me my stuff. So he creates humans out of the corpse of the god to be slaves to him. This is a pretty bleak creation story, eh? That all we are is is slaves, and that all of creation comes out out of death and murder and violence. And on all sorts of ancient Near Eastern Creation myths are similar to this. They're violent accounts of revenge, rebellion, with God, with the world often being created out of a corpse. But Yahweh's world is different, though. 
from the very get-go, there is nothing. There's only God. And actually, there's a triune God who is three in one, and there's perfect love and perfect relationship. There's no rebellion. There's no anger. There's, a, there's nothing but God. The, the Latin word we use for it that you might, if you ever are reading stuff, is called ex nihilo, that God creates out of nothing, is what ex nihilo means. He doesn't need to kill to make life. He's powerful enough to do it on his own. In, God, in our God, there is no death, but there is life. And life abundantly, and it's good. God takes, he forms out of nothing, but yet it seems like in the creation story there is a, 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 an emptiness of some kind. It talks about uh, in 1 verses 2, it says the earth was without form and void. Or some of them might say the earth was wild and waste. This is a Hebrew term that I love to say called tohu wabohu. It's funny to say. I like to. That's one of my favorite, favorite Hebrew words because it's funny. But it means that there's, there's something that's formless and void or it's, it's wild and waste. There's, there's chaos implied. But yet God doesn't have to start a rebellion and kill things and, and really defeat this chaos. He says with one word. He says, he says with words. He says, let there be light. And there was light. Let there be sun and moon, and there was sun and moon. God doesn't have to stop chaos with more chaos. He can stop chaos with life. And even, it talks, when it says uh, in verse, in 1 verse 21, where it says, so God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves. In the Hebrew, that great sea creature literally means God created the sea monster. That he's creating these incredible animals. And actually, this is, this is again subversive. A lot of what God is doing in this creation story is subverting ancient Near Eastern narratives. Of, in many, many of these things, the, the gods or the heroes of their culture had to go and defeat the sea monster. Where actually God is like, no, 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 no. I don't have to defeat the sea monster. I made the sea monster. I've got him on a leash. I watch him play. He's showing his power and he's showing his goodness right from the beginning. And so he creates a world and he creates a garden. He creates a place of life, a place for him to dwell. And he says, it's good. It's very good. And then he gets there and he says, I, when I'm, I made it, I'm in perfect love. And perfect love always expands. There's a rule that perfect love always expands. That in a, in a healthy marriage, hopefully eventually there should be kids because love expands. When, I have, when I'm with my friends whom I love, love expands, and we should be including more people. Love expands. So there's perfect love in this trinity, and so it expands. And God says, let's make more people. Let's make people that we can show more love to. So God creates man in this temple. Like we said in the video, an ancient Near Eastern temple was always built in a certain way. It would have altars for sacrifice, and vessels to put stuff in. But then the very last thing that would put, be put in it is the image, the image of the God. And this would often be some elaborate, inhuman-looking creature that would be like, what is that thing? That's a weird-looking thing. And they would have this whole animating ceremony where they would 
light fire under it, and they take bellows and pump air into it. And God does something similar. He says, let, but he says, let me make man in my image to have dominion over the earth. That this idol doesn't just represent God on this thing. It, it isn't just like a, a stale image that all it does is, is sit there. God says, let them have dominion. That God, he sets humanity apart. We are kings and queens, not slaves for the God's pleasures. Instead of some inanimate object, God makes man in his living, breathing image. But there's life that is not static, but there's life. As I said, in these ancient Near Eastern stories, we're made to be slaves. Even in the Greek myths, the puny humans are there to serve the gods, that men are there to build things, and women are there for the, the pleasures of the gods. But from the very beginning, God says, no, 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 no. These people, these aren't my slaves. These are images of me. These are my children whom I love. From the very beginning, it gives people dignity. It gives women dignity by saying that men and women are created equally in the image of God. He creates us from dust, and he breathes life into us. We aren't created from the corpse of some other God. That's gross. That's not life. But I said God creates us specially and breathes his own life into us. That's, to me, that's beautiful. There's some magnitude to that. Is that I'm not created from something dead. I'm created, of, I'm created in life, from life. To have life. And then not only does he create us, but he dwells with us. That it talks about God makes man, and he sees it as very, very good. And then it says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host on them. And on the seventh day, God, had, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work he had done. That God comes and he, and he rests in his creation, and he rests with his people. Not in a way of which we have to serve him as slaves, but as a way of, of communion with us, of being in community with us. And it talks about he, he walked in the cool of the morning with them. So he rests with us, and he doesn't make us slaves, but he does give us a task. But he doesn't give us a task as slaves, he gives it us as rulers. It says we have dominion over the fish and the birds and the sea and all this stuff. And that means that we are to expand the garden. That there's a, like it talks about, there's kind of the, the circles that there's, there's what's outside the garden, there's the garden, and there's the tree of life in the middle. And so he says, have dominion. Continue creation. Uh, we are the image of God. And so if, if we know that God is a creator God, that means if we are his image, we also are made to create. That we are made to expand. And that when we do this, it actually images God most, is when we are creating and when we are expanding the garden. Humanity's task is to continue this. We are a necessary gardener. That if you have a garden bed at your home and you just leave it to be, it's going to go crazy, right? There's going to be weeds and vines and all your flowers might die. And it's not going to be very nice and pretty. There, it's, there's a necessary order to things. There's, humans must step in if we want to make this look good. 
right? If we want the flowers to grow, we have to water them. If we don't want it to be overrun with weeds, we have to pick the weeds, and maybe we have to spray. We have to, we have to look after this garden. We have a task, and that's, that brings joy to some people. I hate gardening. I feel like a slave when I garden, but I know so many people who love gardening and feel like a king and a queen when they get to garden. <laughs> and in it, there's peace. That in the garden, there's shalom, is the word that the Hebrew uses. And so God blesses them and he says, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heaven, and over every living thing. God blesses man to bless earth. This is what he does. He blesses us to be a blessing. And even after the fall, God continues to renew this human mandate that even though God sends, sends us out of the garden and gives us a curse, we aren't cursed people. We're Eden people. But just because we, we live under the effects of the curse doesn't that mean we have to live in the curse. God still tells us, live as Eden people. Expand the garden, even though you're not in it. In Genesis 9, he talks to Noah after the flood, and he says, and God blessed Noah and his sons to them and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. In Genesis 12, he talks to Abraham and he says, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. In you, all families of the earth shall be blessed. When he brings Israel out of captivity, he says, I will bless you and I will make you a nation of priests. Humanity falls because we try to be more than the image. We try to be God. But yet God has already given us dominion. He's already given us all these things. He's already given us this task, and he blesses us to be a blessing. He then, with Israel, renews it again. He gives them the law, and he shows them this is how we live to bless others. We love God and we love others. That we are blessed to be a blessing. And we still are the image of God. We are still tasked to spread that shalom peace. When Jesus comes, he tells us of the kingdom of God. And Mark, he says, behold, the kingdom of God has come near. And the kingdom of God is just a synonym for the people of Eden. That when Jesus comes, he's re- signaling a return to Eden. He comes and he says, I'm going to show you what it's like to live in Eden. And then I'm going to make a way for you to come back to Eden. The whole biblical story is pointing us back to this Eden moment of our creation mandate of being fruitful and multiplying, subduing the earth, expanding the garden, expanding peace. God continues to renew this. And he keeps it up. And eventually Jesus dies so that we can have that ultimate peace may be accomplished. Peace with God and peace with man. So then he asks, he asks us to continue to be fruitful and multiply and expand the garden. That when Jesus leaves, he kind of, he kind of takes that and he, and he gives it a new spin. Instead of saying, be fruitful, multiply, and subdue the earth, He says, go now, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, commanding them to obey what I have taught you. 
and behold, I am with you till the end of the age. That he says, he says to make disciples, to make spiritual children that originally were supposed to be fruitful and multiply. That's making children. But God says now, make spiritual children. And he says to obey them, to do all I command. And to baptize them. He says, let them know me. To be Eden people, we have to be marked by God. We have to be marked by the presence of God. That like I said earlier, the whole the beauty of Eden is that God dwells with us. That we walk with him. I love that song. And he walks with me and he talks with me. And he tells me I am his own. And the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. That that joy, that peace comes from being marked by his presence. By walking with him. And Jesus tells us now, do this. Still being fruitful and multiplying. But the thing is, though, being fruitful and multiplying isn't just about having kids anymore. It's about making culture. It's by bringing peace. And not the world's kind of uneasy peace, but shalom peace. The image that's associated with most with shalom in the Old Testament is the picture of a strong brick wall. Where every piece is integral. And that if you take every if you take a piece out or you take a couple pieces out of a brick wall, the whole thing falls down. Shalom implies completeness or wholeness. It isn't shalom peace isn't just the absence of conflict, but it's a sense of wholeness. So then being Eden people isn't just about making sure there isn't more. It's about having, being fruitful and multiplying and bringing life and peace in every part of society. Is there peace in your family, with your children, with your spouse? Is there peace and justice in our social structures? Racial justice, poverty, homelessness, women's rights, all these things contribute to a sense of the breakdown of shalom. Access to food and water, drug and alcohol issues, corporate scamming and schemes, it all contributes. And so as Eden people, the question is, is are we making culture? Are we the ones who bring peace and bring wholeness and completeness with the help of God, we have the Spirit in us to help us in this. And it's only through God that we can have shalom. But are we the ones who are actually, who are actually carrying that Spirit to others and into our workplaces, into our families? Are we showing Jesus' grace on us? Are we showing what, a, what it looks like to have a life marked by the presence of God? That when we get in the presence of God, we, we can't leave unchanged. But you can't leave God's presence the same way. And so are we showing that? That's my, my question today, is are we showing that? And as we remember, as we, we, we look to Advent, we remember Jesus came down and he showed us what that, what that model is and he made a way for us to live in that shalom peace. And so first, we need to Get in his presence. Be marked by him because he's made a way for us. And then go.
Go and bring that peace. As you leave this church building, bring peace to wherever you go. Bring peace to Walmart as you get your groceries. Bring peace to Subway as you get lunch. Bring peace home as you go to take your Sunday afternoon nap. Wherever you go, bring peace. Look for how can I help bring this to wholeness? How can I expand the garden? How can I make this situation fruitful? So Jesus, we thank you that you have given us this mission, not as slaves, but as kings and queens, Jesus, who rule with you and are seated in the heavenly places with you, Jesus. Lord, we praise you, and we can't thank you enough for what you did on that cross. And and you came down as a man, Jesus, and did these things. And you modeled to us what it looks like to be people of Eden, to be the kingdom of God, to be priests in your temple, Jesus. So, Lord, as we go from here, I ask that you would give us peace. Lord Jesus, that you would give us a drive and a desire to see the world be fruitful and multiply, to see the garden expanded, to see shalom, peace everywhere, to see, to see your, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, Jesus. Lord, and I bless these people. Jesus, I, say that you, I ask that you give them peace, Jesus. So Holy Spirit, come. We thank you, Jesus, and we love you for what you've done and for your creation, Lord Jesus. We praise you, Lord. Amen.